last week, last week we got together, we were, uh, kind of looked at um, some challenges that happened outside the church when Peter and John were arrested and the reaction to that, uh, the gospel message. Uh, we saw that um, inside the church that some needs arose. We didn't see specific needs, but just that whenever a need arose or, or came up, that people met that need and uh, that they were able to, um, to, to uh, take care of whatever problem happened. Uh, they would sell land, sell houses, do whatever, and we'll kind of pick up there. Um, to kind of give us a framework for uh, for what we're going to talk about today. Um, has anybody ever done anything just for the recognition? You know, maybe you were young. Maybe you were, maybe you took a class because a girl was in it, or maybe you did something. And anyone identify with something like that? You did something probably because it was like, you know, everyone else thought you'd look cool or something like that. Otherwise, you guys were mature teenagers. Um, <coughs> and... Uh, Probably didn't, weren't, didn't, didn't fall prey to those things, but I can think of all of that. I mean, even you know, speaking of weddings, I always think about that time. You know, weddings are those times when, like, people dance, you know, a little bit more than normally. You're like, I don't know, the last time I danced was, like, at a wedding. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get those weddings where people have, like, the uh, circle, and they, you, know, you got to jump in and kind of do your, your special dance. And... Uh, you know, there's always those guys that rise to the occasion. You're like, where do they pull that out? Like, doing the worm and all that, you know? <clears throat> so if you're one of those people, not that you're doing it for the recognition, but there's times that, you know, those hidden talents can emerge. But there's a lot of times that we do things either for recognition or notoriety. You know, maybe it's in workplace. We say things a little bit louder, you know, or at the right time. Um, you know, if you clean something up, you want to make sure you get recognition for it. If you're a kid, um, that your parents see what you've done. And so um, sometimes those things happen, and uh, we're going to see that, <clears throat> that even in the church it happens, um, but God is not somebody to be trifled with, uh, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take a look at that in this, the scenario that plays out uh, in Acts chapter 5. Um, the end of Acts chapter 4 <clears throat> is where I want to kind of do a recap. So look at verse 32, <clears throat> so we kind of see what we looked at last week and um, pick it up as it kind of transitions us to what we're going to look at this week. So at verse 32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Again, that's, that's kind of just the, um, you know, how would you describe the church at that time? You know, they have everything in common. They just are such a tight-knit group. You know, they just went on the backside of this persecution. Um, we see you know, how they respond to one another's needs. It says, verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had any need. So we see like this pattern that, that emerges that, you know, if anyone had a need, people sold the, whatever they had, they brought it to the apostles, and the apostles said, okay, we'll give it to whoever has a need. You know, being the leaders of the church, <clears throat> that they would um, maybe be more informed of who could best use the money. And so that's just what emerged, the, the pattern that we see. Verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is really the first person that we're seeing who actually sold land a name, but it said that others did the same thing. <clears throat> and this leads us into chapter 5 of two others who sold a piece of land. The same thing that Barnabas did, but... Um, a different consequence, and they would be known uh, not as sons of encouragement, but probably better known for um, you know the what had happened to them. So, verse one in chapter five says, um, "But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet." Now, just kind of like thinking about the preliminary questions that, that emerge, what we see in these first like two verses is something that appears to be a righteous act. And so we kind of stop and we think, you know, is anything wrong with this picture? And so, and that's usually like when, when we know what happens. And uh, if you haven't heard this story, we'll find out what happens soon. But um, what happens with them 
um, we kind of start to start to think about, well, is there anything that like were, were warning signs of what, what went on? But at the beginning, we don't see anything that necessarily sets off alarm bells. Is there anything wrong with selling a piece of property at this time? No. Uh, we did talk about that, you know, for Jews, uh, that land was, was important for them. It was kept within their family. So to sell a piece of land, uh, especially if it was in Israel, if they were Jewish, would have meant something significant for that person. But, again, for them, as they're forsaking, uh, you know, some of their Jewish roots and following not what Christ, you know, following Christ, that that means less to them than to meet the needs of those that are now being brought in to the church. But to sell a piece of land, there was nothing on the surface that was wrong with that. Um, anything wrong with telling your wife about the transaction? So I hope, all right, good. So I hope, hope everyone's on the same page with that one. <laughs> you know, unless it's for a gift for, you know, you know, just keeping us as a surprise for later. But with this, no, right? That's something we would encourage, like telling your wife about this transaction and what you're going to do, how you're going to spend your money, and that seems to be something that, you know, on the surface, again, nothing wrong. Anything wrong with keeping some of what you had sold and giving the rest to the church? Now, maybe you're, you know, maybe you'll pause and be like, well, I don't know. Maybe you should have given everything, you know. But we're going to actually see Peter addresses that issue and kind of puts that to rest. But no, there is nothing wrong with selling something with, you know, if you get a bonus check or even, you know, out of like the, the money that you make from your salary and giving a portion of that, right? There's nowhere in scripture that says whatever you make, everything goes to the church, right? Um, that you, you, you take care of your needs and your family's needs and give also to the Lord as well. Um, I mean, that's another, another topic of discussion. So, um, but nothing wrong with doing that. So we see right there at the beginning, they sold a piece of land. They talked about it. They gave them some money to the church. So far, things look good. So it's a righteous act that hopefully you know, gets recognized. But we see what's called an unrighteous motive in the next couple verses. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Okay, so in, in these two verses, Peter confirms that the land was really Ananias's to do with whatever he wanted, right? Before you sold the land, you could have done whatever you wanted with it, right? You could have raised cattle or sheep or done whatever you wanted. You could have, after this fact, taken the money and done with it whatever you wanted. It's your land, right? And so this is a good kind of paradigm that, that you know, and we see that all throughout Scripture, that when people give to the church, right, it is given out of their own heart desire, not out of some mandate that is required <clears throat> from the church. And Peter, again, affirms that. It says you could do it with that money whatever you wanted with that. <clears throat> but what seemed to be the issue? Yeah, so he says a lie. What's that? He claimed that he gave it all. <clears throat> he claimed that he gave it all. Now, we don't actually see that, except that Peter alludes to that fact that there was some sort of, and we're going to see that this is actually affirmed in a couple verses, but he says that there's some sort of lie, right? You've lied to the Holy Spirit, and that there's some trickery, some deceit, something that is going on with this transaction. Um, what was the source that Peter says of this lie, of this deceit. What's that? Well, that's not the source of the lie. Oh, okay, all right. We'll get to that in a second. All right, so you hold that for a second. What was the source of the lie that uh, Ananias had perpetuated? Or, I don't know if that's the right word. But anyway, what's that? All right, so Satan, right. So um, have we seen Satan... Uh, either enter into someone's heart or see Satan um, motivate somebody previously in Scripture. Anytime in the Gospels. Okay, so we see in Genesis, all right, yes, yeah, so way back, we see in Genesis that, all right, Genesis, uh, that, um, Genesis, that Satan talked to, or the serpent, uh, Satan in the, in the serpent form, talked to Eve, right, convinced her, you know, that the fruit that uh, God said not to eat was actually something that would make her wise, and so she ate of it. So we see Satan's first trick, first deceit. Um, anywhere else we see in Scripture? 
What's that? Saul. Okay. Uh, so Saul, we see that Saul get, becomes uh, <laughs> mad and that he uh, ends up uh, going after David. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. And so we see, uh, you know, um, where uh, God's spirit leaves, um, uh, leaves Saul and an evil spirit actually enters in. <laughs> to Saul and makes him kind of go after David. Um, in the Gospels, we see that, right? Um, who uh, Who's probably most... What's that? Judas, right? And so we see that in a couple places uh, in the Gospels that uh, that Satan enters Judas's heart um, and that even Jesus knew about it. He said, you know, go do what you're, you're planning on doing. Um, and that, that Satan uh, entered his heart in order for him to commit the deceit against, against Christ. We also see, and so turn to Matthew 16. It's kind of kind of uh, interesting. Now, sometimes you say like you know, you start making the like logical maybe leaps of saying like, okay, well, if Satan is influencing this person, you know, what does this mean about their salvation? So we really can't make any sort of conclusive indications one way or another about that. But in one sense, like Judas, um, who other places in Scripture say that Judas. Uh, you know, remain condemned and that he never was a follower of Jesus, that he was a hypocrite um, in, in the full sense. Uh, but we see Satan um, actually, right, being rebuked when Jesus is talking to Peter. In verse uh, 21 of Matthew 16, It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Interesting, those elders and priests and uh, scribes were there for Peter and John's trial. (coughs) And it says that he'd be killed and, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You know, Jesus you know, saying, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. This is God's plan. You know, like, I'm going to show you that the, everyone's going to turn against me and that I'm going to be crucified. And, G, and, and Peter's like, no, 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 no. You, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Um, Jesus, like, that's not going to happen to you. And so how does Jesus respond? He says, he turned and he said to Peter, right? He's talking to Peter specifically. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so we see here that when Peter is talking in this way, that he's not talking in light of what the Holy Spirit is directing, right? That Jesus go to the cross, that it's something counter to that, that stopping Jesus from going to the cross actually would not benefit anyone, right? Because we would still be remaining in our sin if Jesus never was crucified for our sin and never raised from the dead. And so, um, so he says that that thinking is satanic. And so he says, he, he basically calls Peter out as being in line of what, what Satan is teaching, right? You are a hindrance to me and what I'm doing. And it's not, you're not setting your things on what God has said, but you're doing what man has desired, right? The things that only men think about that concern themselves with and not what, how God is working in our lives. And so we'll see that similar application to the church when we go back to Acts. So go back to, go back to Acts. <clears throat> now this Peter, who was called Satan, right, is now on the other side, right, calling somebody else out for um, having, you know, ha- being, um, being persuaded or, uh, or uh, influenced by satanic thinking, right? Peter again was accused by that uh, of that by Christ, and so he's not um, immune to that thinking. He understands his frailties. We actually will also see uh, if you look in um, I think it's in Galatians when when Paul is talking about going to uh, uh, Galatia, and um, I think it's is that in Galatians when uh, when he rebukes Peter for that. Yeah, in Galatians. Okay, rebukes Peter for. Uh, for fleshly thinking and separating himself from eating with the Jew or eating with the Gentiles when Jewish people come and eat with them. And so Paul had to rebuke Peter for that. So we're all susceptible for falling into sin, no matter how spiritual uh, we can be at other times. 
But Peter is, is, is understanding that something is going on with this transaction. That they bring, you know, other people had brought their sold land, brought the money, laid it at their feet. This wasn't the first time. This won't be the last time. But this one time, it kind of like a, a red flag goes up. And so what is, Charlie, the source of Peter's knowledge? How does, how does he know? <laughs> this so the Holy Spirit, right? Because it says that it says that you conceive this in your heart, right? You know, unless Peter, like Peter, doesn't, didn't say that. You know, I heard you speaking to your wife, or somebody reported to me that we see that it is it is the Holy Spirit is impressed on Peter that something is gone wrong, that it was in Ananias's heart, and that it was a lie against God, and so God must have revealed this. To Peter, it's kind of interesting uh, to note, and this is one of those scriptures. When you look at the doctrine of the Trinity, so when uh, you know, look at all different scriptures of uh, where the Trinity um, plays a part with uh, you know, the Father and the Son, and when you get to the Holy Spirit, you know, a lot of times people uh, in the church will kind of refer to the Holy Spirit as like this entity, and some people actually teach that some. Uh, those that would say that they're Christian would teach that the Holy Spirit is a force or an entity, but not a person. <clears throat> and this is one of those, those uh, places in Scripture that um, you can use to kind of counter that thinking. Because why? Who did? Who was being lied to? The Holy, the Holy Spirit, right? And you don't lie to a force, right? You know, you didn't say you lied to gravity and flew in an airplane or something. <laughs> Is that, I guess that's fitting, fittingly, right? So, um, so uh, right. So you don't you don't say that. But when you say that you lie to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is a person uh, and a person that can be lied to. And there's other scripture that you can go to that you can grieve the Holy Spirit and do other things to the Holy Spirit that are uh, characteristic of a person. We see here that not only is the Holy Spirit lied to, but it says that you've conceived in your heart, but you haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God, and that connection with Holy Spirit being God, being a person, one other person in the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit is a person, and that is who is being lied to, right? That the Holy Spirit has now come down and is in all believers' hearts uh, after the day of Pentecost, and that now their act is a deceit against what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in the church, just like Peter was trying to uh, stop what was how God was working in the lives of um, you know in the life of Christ and his disciples early on. And so, verses five and six, we see the startling consequence of this unrighteous motive. This righteous act had an unrighteous motive, and the consequence of it is something that really stops us in our track. When Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him and carried him and buried him. All right, so just to be clear, what happened to Ananias? He died. Okay, right. So he breathed his last, and he was buried. So Ananias died, right? You know, it's kind of interesting when we think like that every, all our days have been numbered and, you know, we're going to die at the day that God appointed us to die. And this is like Ananias's day that was appointed to him. And so it was instructive for the church when Ananias was his, his last day on earth. And so we're going to, we'll talk about that in a second. Hey, yes. Um, before we go into that part of it. So yeah. Back where, you know, it says Satan filled your heart and then, you know, Jesus calling Peter Satan. And then I think Judas, I think it actually says that Satan entered into Judas. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and this kind of, you know, this leads to kind of a bigger uh, discussion um, on, you know, whether, and I don't know, maybe, you know, usually probably maybe a small percentage, but probably in a room this size, or maybe like one of you that might have grown up in a church that uh, taught that um, believers could be, um, uh, was it possessed? Yeah, I don't know the word, it just escaped me. So, uh, and that, that sometimes then becomes a part of of kind of uh, tr- the vernacular of people's lives of like you know praying that Satan wouldn't enter 
into people's hearts and, and things like that. So um, for Judas, not being a believer, later scripture saying that he's condemned, that he is in hell, um, and, and seeing kind of that idea that Satan entered into him, that he was able to be possessed. Uh, nowhere else in scripture do we see that any believer is able to be possessed. We see uh, demon possession happen in other places or demons overpowering a person um, as far as their spiritual you know, state. We're not exactly sure and some of those things. Um, but there's a contrast with being filled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you could say that you're filled with something else. And so since Satan is, um, you know, I guess, uh, prince of the power of this world, Right, that anything that is a device that goes against and goes contrary to what God is doing would be filled with satanic thinking. And so as far as this, uh, we don't see that they were demon-possessed, but that they were filled with deceit in their heart. And Satan uses that deceit in order to split up churches. All right, you know, Paul would say that you guys, you know, especially the Corinthians, he wouldn't say that you're thinking. Uh, he doesn't use the the term you're thinking satanically, but you're thinking worldly, you're thinking fleshly. But all of those things would be something synonymous that he would describe. <clears throat> but that's a good question because, um, you know, there are those that would say that you could be possessed um, by a demon, but if you've got the Holy Spirit within you, it's just how full of the Holy Spirit are you, right? And and how is that, uh, you know? How in line are you with what God desires? Is really kind of what being filled with the Holy Spirit is. Yeah. Is a good reference for that in Second uh, Corinthians and verse five, uh, or verse four and five. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion <laughs> against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Yeah, and that's the same idea, right? He's talking about you know philosophy and and you know and these worldly des- desires and thinking. And uh, when you look in Ephesians six and and taking up the armor of God, you know it's the same thing that Satan uses in order to sway you or to you know. And, and sometimes it can be pragmatic thinking. I mean, this might be what uh, is filling their hearts. And we'll look at that when we get kind of to the end and, and reflect back on you know what motivated them to do this. Um, we don't know exactly, but we can kind of, you know, we can maybe draw some conclusions that could be instructive for us. But that's a good question. Um, you know, uh, what what exactly does this mean? It doesn't. We don't see that where Judas it entered into him, but <laughs> just like Peter, we didn't see that Satan entered into Peter, but that he is rebuked, as he is thinking uh, like Satan would think and doing things that would try to hinder what Christ is trying to do. And that's where exactly what the reasons why we see the consequences happen with them, right? <laughs> uh, we see that they were uh, that. Um, well, how did how did others respond to this? Yeah, so great fear, and we'll get to a little bit more about that reaction. But it says there that great fear came upon all who he- heard it. Um, <clears throat> that you know something serious has gone on, and uh, it's not something to be taken lightly. <clears throat> And it says that the young men came in, wrapped him up, and buried him that day. I mean, it was quick. We find out that in a few hours, his wife will arrive and after the guys had already buried him. And that was just something that uh, earlier in, um, uh, in the Pentateuch, uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy, it describes, you know, if somebody has died, uh, somebody dies or die, is, die, uh, is killed on, on a cross, that you bury him that day. And um, we don't see the ceremonial burying that, that happened with Jesus, where they... Uh, you know, would have would have wrapped them and you know, wrapped them in spices. That was something that was usually an, an, an honorific. But they would have usually buried them that day. Um, the the thought was that you would not defile your camp by having a dead body around, and so that was the practice and the custom. So he dies right on the spot. Men jump to it, you know, wrap them up and take them out, and um, and he's carried away. So. Uh, we see the accomplices' same fate in verses 7 through 11. Um, after, uh, let's see here. after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men carried, came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. <clears throat> so why did Peter ask how much she sold the land for? Okay, want to, want to see if she'd be honest or not, because again, right, it's, uh, you know, Peter has been prompted by the Holy Spirit, kind of revealed to him by God, because he's able to understand what's going on in Ananias' heart, um, and so to see whether she is complicit, um, which he probably knew, um, and also to verify, yeah, what, what exactly happened, right, because at this point, Peter's saying, um, you've got this lie in your heart, and he kind of accuses him, and then he drops down dead, right? So you think everyone who hears it is like, what just, <laughs> what just went on, right? Did Peter kill him? Um, or something like that. And so, but, right, they had just, he had just come up and brought money at his feet. So say he brought him a sum of money, and the wife comes in and says, well, did you sell the, the land for that amount? And so whatever she said, if she agreed that the amount that they gave was the selling price of the land then none of that money would have been held back, right? It would have been fully given. But she says, oh, no, yes, that's exactly what we sold the land for, and we gave everything to you guys. And he says, okay, you know, that, that same thing that happened to your husband is going to happen to you. Um, so she, Peter says that, um, you know, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Why is it considered testing of the Holy Spirit? Okay, good. Yeah, so um, testing the Lord is, is in a couple different ways. One is, is it okay to lie? And is it okay to lie publicly? And is it okay to lie in the church? Like, is God really going to do anything? I mean, that's, that's kind of, if you step back and think, their whole motivation when they're coming towards, like, we're going to do this, and we're going to say, we uh, sold the land for this much, and we're going to give it to this much, and it's not going to be a big deal. I mean, for them, it's almost like when the Israelites would, um, you know, grumble and complain while there is a pillar of fire, like, in their midst, right? Like, this, this pillar of fire is not going to do anything. Um, for somehow they became clouded by that. Because Ananias and Sapphira would surely have known uh, all of the miracles that had been happening uh, up to the church at this day, and the things that, how God was working. And that's probably, you know, what drew them to the church. And if they were actually believers, but just in deceit, that's kind of the, the question, you know, would we see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven? You know, I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but, like, they were drawn to the church. Mighty works were being done among the people. Plus, there's this great generosity that's going on, and they're being swept up by it, but they're not, you know, uh, they're not following in line with what God desires. Turn to Malachi real quick. <clears throat> A while back, I can't remember how long, but I taught through uh, Malachi uh, we went into greater detail about this. Um, it's interesting, you know, with this small little book, uh, how uh, there's so many, so many applications later on in Scripture. But uh, chapter 1, verse 6, I just want to read this, because another thing is they're doing exactly what Malachi rebukes the priests for doing way back, <coughs> you know, a few hundred years ago, before this time. Um, Verse 6 of chapter 1 of Malachi, which is right before Matthew, says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Interesting, this idea about fear. Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. And they say, well, how have we despised your name? The Lord answers, verse 7, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, well, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? 
And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that he might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you, this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Ha <laughs> similar with uh, Ananias and Sapphira doing. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Ooh, like serious rebuke. And at, at this point... In the very early stages of the church, there is a clear message that is being sent that if you are going to come and bring an offering, which you have every right to bring, you could bring as little as you want, as much as you want, you don't even have to bring anything. You could have kept that, that land until some other desire, time that maybe you desire to give it up or keep it for yourself. I mean, Peter says that. That's yours to do with what you want. But if you come to the church and you bring something, and it's a deficient offering, because as soon as you lay it down to the apostles' feet, you're giving it to the church. Whose church is it? It's God's church, right? And they would have repeated the fact that, that you know, Peter would have said that Christ is building the church on the testimony that Jesus is God, right? And that is, you know, Christ says, I will build my church upon that confession, and I will build my church upon that. And it is Christ's church. So when they give money to uh, the church, which is being, again, spread out to those who are in need, to those others in the church, if there is any deceit in that, we're not seeing with Malachi where it's a rebuke and saying, please change your ways. We're seeing an instant judgment. And that becomes like some of those, you know, these portions of Scripture where we read that and you start to think like, wow, <laughs> You know, we have a sense of like justice and a sense of fairness and a sense of like, was that a little bit too harsh or was that a little, you know, as parents, sometimes we can like be firm and then be like, was that a little bit too much, you know, with our kids, right? But with God, sometimes there's in scripture that he sends clear messages. We need to be thankful that he doesn't, he doesn't still work that way in the church um, because there are times that you're like, I don't know, have I been fully honest? Have I been fully faithful? Have I ever held back? Have I, you know, which is good for us to read this and be like, you know, is that something, you know, that I need to check my own heart for? But for the early church, which was exploding and it's messed its first uh, resistance from the outside, God's like, we do not need this on the inside. So as soon as, as, soon as they drop dead, we see a, a clear response from those on the outside. What does verse 11 say? And even on the inside, right? What does verse 11 say? <laughs> Great fear came upon them. Great fear came upon them, right? When we look at this passage of Malachi, the priests were not fearing God. They were like, ah, we can just bring a sacrifice and nothing's going to happen. I've done it before. I've gotten away with it. It's no big deal. You vow what's good for you. You know, it's, it's you know, an unblemished which would give you a higher price, you know, in the marketplace, but just give me, like, whatever, you know, and God will take it. And God's like, listen, like, I've been patient with you enough, but enough's enough. And so as soon as he gets any hint of this happening in the church, it stopped right there so that everyone else will have that fear of what's going on. Yes? That kind of reminds me, too, of the uh, Aaron's sons and the strange fire. Yes. Yeah, the first, you know, Aaron, I want you to be my priest. Your son can be priest as well. They mess around, dead. And Aaron's like, oh. <laughs> right? Uh, because Aaron, right, had earlier 
<laughs> been involved in making a golden calf, yeah. right? You know, and you think God, like of all people, like you know, send a message clear to Aaron. Yeah. But uh, he was, he was, you know, but Aaron, he used Aaron in. Uh, in, in the plagues and all that. And so sometimes you see in Scripture that God is harsh, right, and, and sends a clear message, and other times you're like, how come this guy keeps getting away with it, you know? Um, but that's God's prerogative to do with what he wants. My, you know, I thought of them. I also thought of, um, you guys remember uh, Uzzah, right? And what's Yeah, so I remember having just a hard time with that. Like, I was like, whoa, man, that's like... So, what, so the, the story is it's in 2 Samuel 6, if you want to read it, David is going to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And so it's like, ah, put it on a cart and only the Levites can touch the ark. No one else can touch it lest you die. So that thing is there. Well, the cart um, hits a bump and Uzzah, it, like the, the ark is going to fall. And so Uzzah goes up to, to stabilize it and, and is, is killed immediately. And so sometimes you think like, well, he was like, you know, he was just like stable, like he was actually doing a good thing. The ark would have fallen, right? But then there's a couple things you have to stop and think, like, well, what was he doing so close to the ark anyway, right? If he is like that close, he's not able to touch it, he was like too close to that. Maybe it was even like the fact that what if it had fallen on him, you know, and he was like too close to that, that same prerogative, that he didn't fear God enough where he gave enough distance and only allowed those whom he, he wanted, you know, that God had determined. Well, what was the reaction to that? David was like, oh, uh, we can't have the ark here in Jerusalem. Like, this is a serious thing. Because up to that point, before that, the Philistines had captured the ark, and, you know, and we have all these things. Like, the ark was just kind of this thing that was tossed around, and like, God's like, no, no, no. My ark is where my presence is going to be, and it's going to be in the Holy of Holies. And so... Um, it is something special for you guys, and I want you to kind of be aware of that. And that kind of woke everyone up. It took three months for the ark to come back into Jerusalem before David was like, okay, like now we've prepared a place for God and you know, for his ark to come. But it's kind of a wake-up call. But for those that are either new believers, I remember like I just always had a tough time, like, you know, poor little Uzzah, like what, you know. And it, it, you know, and it is kind of true, like he was doing something good, but you also like, understand like the the other thing like this Ananias fire like he they did give money to the church right they did sell their land they went through the whole process but God is sending a clear message right that there is something else going on that the motive of how you give is just as important as what you give because sometimes you can be like you know, look at too much of the sacrifice and it was unblemished and all that. But God's like, listen, I don't even care about sacrifices, right? But other places in scripture, you look that, you can, you can type those words out, you know, where I want your obedience over your sacrifices. Like, that's really what I want. And that's where we get to kind of the heart of the issue here. So why do you think, and again, this is, you know, some speculation. And there's other places, again, this fear of the Lord is healthy, you know, the very beginning of Proverbs, Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This fear is not like scared of God. This fear is like, oh yeah, God is going to do what he says he's going to do. That's like the fear. And what does God say? Like, I will judge people who don't follow me and I will bless people. And it goes both ways, like that God will do what he says he's going to do. And that's really what the fear of the Lord is. Uzzah, you should have feared God that he, if he touched the ark, if it fell on you, if whatever happened, some accident, you should have given enough distance. It's like getting a foot away from an electrical fence and like your brother bumping into you. And you know, like, is it your brother's fault or is it your fault that you're staying a foot away from the electrical fence? Probably your brother's fault. No, so, um, <laughs> right? But, you know, if you don't have that healthy respect, and for them, the same thing, that they just, they just came with ulterior motives. So why do you think that they brought this, this, this uh, like, why do you think people would do th- these types of things? Okay, so recognition, right? You know, it's probably like one of the, the biggest motivators. Because um, who did we just hear about at the end of chapter 4? Barnabas, right? You know, and this guy Barnabas, and he sold land, and you know, he's being probably like praised for it. Um, and there's times, right, that you probably can think of in your own life, like someone was praised for something, and you're like, I did that too, you know, but I got no praise, you know, right? And so, but that's just that's our that's our fleshly motivation. That's our that's what's in our hearts. Like, you know, hey, 
I was doing that for <laughs> it's like when you're a kid you're like you're like into a band you're like I like that band before they were even famous you know um, I knew them back when you know what does that prove I nothing really but we all want that that motivation that recognition yeah Exactly, exactly. Exactly, and that's what we said last week, right? That everything that they had given, they just gave because they were like, you know, it's not ours anyway, and God will just replenish whatever we have, and God may have other motivations for us. So he knew that they were not giving all what was theirs anyway, so. Yeah, and you know what? It cleared up some estate issues probably. Um, no, that's... <laughs> Probably a bad joke for them. But we're going to see like later on that selling the land is going to like actually clear the way for them to be freed up to do other things. But Ananias and Sapphira were, um, you know, were swept up in this either, you know, recognition, notoriety. And remember, Jesus rebuked that, right? He says, don't be like the Pharisees. When they give prayers, right, they make the loud prayers so everybody can hear them um, or... Uh, you know, they, they, they give their offering so everybody can see what they're doing, right? Don't let your right hand see what your left hand is giving. I mean, you know, Jesus said, like, like it, it shouldn't be something that, you know, you and your wife are like, hey, we're going to go through this, we're going to give this money, we're going to give it to them, you know, make sure I'll give it. You know, you come in a little bit later. Who knows why they were separated in that time and, and why that? And, and, and God says, listen, you know, if they were believers at this time, for them to die is no big deal, right? For them to die is, is to be immediately with the Lord. And, you know, that, that was a good thing. If they were unbelievers, well, we know, you know, we rest in God's sovereignty that they were not set apart for God in the first place. We have no indication as far as what their salvation is. And that's really not a point that this passage is making. It's a point of, of purity in the church is what is most important. And we see that in the last, few, last set of verses. The reaction of the people. He says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Uh, that Solomon's portico, uh, we had talked about um, a few weeks ago, um, when the lame beggar, uh, when he was healed, like Peter and John were making their way to Solomon's portico, <coughs> or uh, that they were... Uh, in the temple, probably headed to this area because we see that this is kind of a regular meeting place for them to be. But it was an area where people, a covered area where people would rest. And, um, and so they were all together there. And that's where we see, again, uh, people uh, in, in the midst, right again, in the temple grounds, um, where they were a few weeks ago or however long ago when they were arrested, going, at, going back at it again. <coughs> And so, how would now the apostles be regarded? How do you think, like, because of these incidents, how do you think the apostles would be looked at by the people? With fear. What's that? With fear. With fear? Okay. Why? Right. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, so it says that, yeah they held him in high esteem, right? Because Peter at this point, right? Peter denies Jesus, and then we see Peter, um, you know, publicly like preach this message, right? Just to say like people, we're not drunk, like this whole t- speaking in tongues. Let me tell you, and he preaches about Jesus, and then this this guy is healed, the lame beggar is is healed, and he's like, let me tell you the power of which this guy is healed. It's by through Jesus, and so. It's kind of maybe this like fringe religious figure, but now as the church is growing, uh, something that like maybe God is is working and is behind and supporting what is going on in the church, and it says that they held them, uh, you know, in high esteem. And so um, these leaders in this church is likely not somebody to be to mess to mess with, right? Verse thirteen: None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Again, we said that. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So why do you think people are not joining them? Fear. Fear. <laughs> What's that? I don't die. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if you're not fully in it, right, don't be in it. Uh, sometimes, like, 
you know, that message has maybe even be flipped, right? I remember uh, when we lived in Arkansas, we'd always see these, these wonderful signs. I should have taken pictures of them. But one of them, like, it's always kind of just disturbed me. It was like a, just a, a billboard that said, try Jesus. Then mm-hmm. I was just like, ah, try Jesus. Like, he's not like, you know, see if like Jesus fits, you like him or not, you know. And I think sometimes that ends up, you know, you kind of understand like, well, we just, you know, want you to like not... I don't know. I don't know what the motivation is. It's some pragmatic thinking, but try Jesus is not, you know, is not this message. Like try Jesus is you might die by because of Jesus, right? If you just try Jesus. And so here the people were like, okay, we understand that it, this is either an all in <laughs> or all out proposition. And that's what Jesus said, right? Right after he gave the he he gave the rebuke to Jesus, he tells the crowd, "If you want to follow me, take up your cross." I mean, we didn't get to that, but that's exactly the next things that he says: "Pick up your cross and follow me." Because you, if you're with me, you'll pick up your cross and follow me. Otherwise, just sit on the sidelines because you're against me. And so that's that's really you know, and the people were starting to understand that, which is good. That's a message that um, that that should be understood about Jesus' church. They fear the consequence, right? So it says the rest didn't join, but it says more believers were being added every day. It's kind of one of the things like, you know, a lot of people are like, no thanks, but then a lot of people are like, yes, right? If God's there, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. I I want to, you know, be a part of this church. I'm all in. And that's, again, just echoing the message that so many people rejected that Jesus gave, right? And so it's okay not to have everyone be a part of the church, right? It's okay to have people be like, no, like what you guys do is you actually worship God who you believe in, whom you fear. And so that's an okay place to be in the church. And sometimes I think, you know, again, not our church, but you know, a lot of churches can cloud that message and be like, yeah, just feel comfortable for a while, and maybe eventually you'll get used to the idea of Jesus, and then you'll follow along, you know? And so that's, that's, that's not a clear message, um, and it's certainly not one that was in the early church. What's that? They try to make it a feel-good place, and you don't need it to be. Yeah, well, and church doesn't have to be the opposite, right? You, kinda, you have that false dichotomy, like, well, we're a feel-good church, whereas, like, oh, yeah, no, I like a church that makes me depressed and angry all the time, right? That's not, that's not the case. Like, our, all churches should be feel-good churches, but, like, what is it that's making you feel good? Is it, I'm feeling good because I'm saved by Jesus and resting in Christ? If it's like, well, you're not in Jesus, but let me make you feel good anyway, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the tension. Again, you're not trying to drive people away, but that's a whole other message. That's a that's a whole other message. So, but it's a good recognition that we have, right? That it's understanding. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, did the death of Ananias and Sapphira did it kill church growth? No, no, right? It actually did the opposite. And you know, people are drawn to authentic faith. And sometimes there's there's that message that you know maybe with increased persecution that the church would actually like grow and be refined. You see that in history, and you see that in other places. So, verse 15, So they even carried out sick people into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So, um, people now regarded Peter as like a healer, just like Jesus. When Peter came into town, and actually... Peter was in Jerusalem. People from outside of town were dragging people who were sick and needed healing into town. That as maybe Peter, you know, maybe he had his everyday route as they were going to, who knows, Solomon's portico. That they were like, hey, at least maybe if his shadow hits you, that you'll be healed. And we have no indication that that actually healed people. But that was their thinking, that, that Peter, this man Peter, is this great healer. Fortunately, Peter, you know, every time that he gets in front of a crowd... He says, it's not me, it's Christ, right? And so that's usually the message that we're seeing. But people are like, well, something's going on, and we want some of that. Now people are being attracted, not only in Jerusalem, but from outside. And so now we're getting more people coming in for the temple? No. For this new, you know, growing faith that follows Jesus? Yes. And so because of that, we're going to see our next opposition. um, And we're going to get to that. That's going to be what happens next. So, 
Uh, kind of in summary, this whole the whole scenario with Ananias and Sapphira is really you know shows that it we all need to have a healthy fear of God, right? Fear of God in both ways that, that He does judge, and uh, you know there's places you can look. You're taking communion, um, and, you know, the Lord's table. Come with that with reverence, you know. In other places in Scripture, that uh, we should have a healthy fear of God that He will you know uh, judge. Um, that the purity of God's people is important to him. You see that in the past in Malachi. We see that here in the church that he wants, you know, Ananias and Sapphira to just be honest, be open, be upfront. Like, this is what we have. We're going to keep some of it behind. doesn't make us less spiritual. And even if people think we're less spiritual because of it, who cares? Like, right? We only are concerned with what God thinks, not what others think. Um, and that the seriousness of God's message is important to him. Right, that God wants us to take Him seriously, um, to have that healthy fear. He's okay with that. We should be okay with that, and uh, because that is what brings God the most glory. Lines are clear about who God is, and not fuzzy um, in regards to not only what God, who God is, and what He can do, but also it's clear about how you can come and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. All right. Well, any questions or comments? Just like, you know, if he didn't, you know, kill Luther and kill the other guys, uh, Aaron's son, mm-hmm. then, I mean, especially these people, then people, then sin would have grown in the church because people, more people have done what they did because they would have bragged about it later on and then it become a kind of a symptom in the church. It may be, yeah, and it, it might also be like, you know, they're probably not the only ones who were doing it or thinking about it, they might have just been the first, and someone's like, oh, <laughs> honey, what we talked about this morning, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do it, you know. Maybe the next person in line, like, backs up and says, we're calling an audible on this. You know, and, and so, you know, we don't have any indication, but again, you don't see who the names are, except you see Barnabas in contrast, and you see Ananias and Sapphira, and it's because of that message of how, what God desires. And again, you know, like it's been said, that what we own is, is God's, and so we should trust Him and uh, what He can do. So. Yeah, and I mean, Moses is another one, right? He smashes a rock, and you're like, you know what? You're not going to let him in because of that. You know, it's like our fleshly. But you're like, God's like, no, I'm not. You know, um, and so all of those things end up becoming, especially when we have those reactions. It's usually cultural reactions of like fairness, uh, and God's like, listen, I, you don't want me to be fair. So that's a whole other message. So. <laughs> Yes.